So are you always lurking in the dark? Oh, how you work best <laughs> in the dark? Well, I took I took um I took a course uh, from Ann K. Emery, who's a data analyst, and she said that uh, highlighting just your face and having a dark background is a good way to be on camera. Ooh. I'm actually not used to being on camera um, oh. for my own podcast. I usually do just audio. Um, yeah. I will have the interview on camera, but then I I share mostly just the audio. Um, so this is actually my first time recording a podcast and my first time recording on yes. camera. Yes. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for, thank you for being here. Uh, for those joining us, uh, I appreciate you, uh, tuning in. Um, my guest today is Jennifer Van Alstein. Uh, she is the owner and strategist for the academic designer. And I'm really interested in, in learning about that entity and, uh, your story overall. But, um, you know, the first thing I always ask folks is you know, when did you when did you discover you had to be in in communications and marketing and and you know being a creative professional? What was that aha snap kind of moment for you? Yeah, well, I would say that um, I've always been interested in it. Uh, I started out as an English major, um, and during that time, I was editor in chief of my university's literary magazine. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really wanted to do for that magazine was bring it more online. It was something that everyone at the school knew about, but it wasn't really reaching the larger community. Um, so I created a website for them. I started doing some social media for them. I will say it didn't last, but it made me realize that it was something that I was interested in. So then uh, as I continued school, I went on to get an MFA in writing and poetics at Europa University. Um, when I got there and they gave me the chance to do some work in that area as well, especially during events, um, I had a lot of fun with it and I yeah. just kind of realized that it was something that I loved. That's but cool. I would say it wasn't a plan. It was just something that I recognized at that time that I was really interested in. Right. You know, I, I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, the the consensus that I've found with the folks that I've spoken with is that it was never a part of a plan. It was like yeah. set in their lap or they walked into it or it was they just happened to discover this interest or passion or talent that they had for, you know, marketing, calm design and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, um you know, I, I so I, I, I appreciate your story thus far. Uh, not that I wouldn't otherwise, but um, you said you had two master's degrees. Yeah, I have a MFA in writing and poetics. I, I focused on poetry and it was something that I really love and continue to write. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was really interested in continuing my scholarship and criticism. So I continued on to get a master's in English literature uh, where my yeah. focus was medieval, medieval poetry, essentially, uh, okay. especially nature in medieval poetry. Um, so you may be curious like how I got from there to now like in the digital world. As a matter and, of fact, I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing that I love most about poetry is the form. And I really like the idea that people are from kind of the entire span of history have been putting words into particular forms to tell stories. Um, when I encountered social media more professionally, um, I had been writing poetry uh, for a few years and had been publishing and, and had gotten some awards. And so I felt like that was something that I was good at. And when I was translating the things that I'd learned in poetry about making sure that your word choice is good, about seeing what emotion you can bring up in the reader right. to social media, I realized that that was something that I could do and I could do 
pretty easily. Um, it, it felt really natural to me to tell yeah. stories in that in that kind of form. I, you know, I, so what's interesting with me is, so I appreciate where you're coming from. And um, I've kind of got the, the opposite sort of scenario where I've always been a designer. I've been yeah. a designer since I was 11. And, you know, so I've been doing, I've been pra uh, practicing design in one way or another all of my life, a majority of, a vast majority of my life. But what's interesting is um, I started cultivating my creativity through writing when I was even younger than ah. that. Uh, I, I don't have the, the direct recall for this, the, the memories, but, you know, my, my parents would always say like, yeah, you, you were like seven, seven or eight. <laughs> writing a uh, uh a neighborhood newspaper on my parents typewriter oh i love that and you know I, i'm like well you know now it makes sense that i'm a, in the creative professions because that is who i was from like day one right yeah definitely um, i would say i've always been creative i mean i did i'm a classically trained musician i did opera i am an accomplished pianist um, I also really like sketching and visual arts. And so I feel like I, I love- Can you do math? No, I'm pretty oh, terrible damn, at math. Oh, I was going to call you a renaissance woman. You can I'm do pretty everything. terrible at math. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always have my calculator out when I'm making sure. And I have a bookkeeper because I want to make sure that things are done right. I, I do not do math. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, um, taxes don't make any sense. So it's <laughs> best to hire someone to do that for you. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, there's not a whole lot of logic and, you know, uh, logic <laughs> system there. So I don't blame you. I do the same as me. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you've, you've cultivated this, this experience in, in writing, you've got two graduate degrees, um, out of curiosity, and maybe this is something that I'm going through right now. Yeah. Uh, when does the, when does the learning end? Like if, if you had an opportunity to get a PhD or an EDD or some kind of doctoral degree, would you pursue that now? Um, I personally, I would not. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think for a lot of reasons. First yeah. is that I, I speak and deal mostly with PhDs and other academics and researchers. Um, I know there is a ton of value to the PhD. My fiance just finished his PhD in English. Um, however, based on my own interests right now, it's just not something that's, I think, in the cards for me. It's, yeah. a, it's a large commitment, a large time commitment. And it's also... I don't know. I think I'm. I think I'm kind of done being in academia for the time being. Um, I On love working with. Side. Yeah, I love working with academics. But one thing that I found during my MFA was that I love communications far more than I enjoy teaching. Right. I'm good at teaching. Like my students liked me. Um, I had great classes. I like teaching online. Um, mm -hmm. but maybe that was the key. I preferred teaching online to teaching in the classroom. And so when I started being able to do more remote working through communication strategy, I realized it was something that was a great fit for me and for my own kind of mental health too. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. And you, so I, I was in a PhD program for like a month mm -hmm. and it was a PhD in community engagement, which okay. is, you know, thematically perfect for my academic research and my background in the arts and everything. Like it, it made total sense. And right. then I got there and I realized like, 
what am I doing? <laughs> like, you know, there were some other circumstances, which I won't mention, which left me to, which basically forced me to leave. And, you know, ultimately is my decision, but I, you know, I was, uh, I had just started this new job at Pitt and I left teaching after a decade and that was a hard transition and yeah. I'm still dealing with it despite the fact that I'm adjuncting. And, um, I, I'm just sitting there in class and I'm thinking like, I don't think I can learn anymore. Not to say uh. that, I'm not saying that I don't have things to learn. And in fact, I, I feel like I have a million things to learn right now. And perhaps I'm putting too much pressure on myself to figure out how to learn them. But I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I don't know if I'm teachable. <laughs> uh, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, yeah. I felt very similar similarly by the end of both my graduate programs. Um, and I think that for the PhD, I, I just know that I'm not in that mindset to learn in a classroom setting and have assignments. Well, um, you know, the, 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 yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but like I, maybe one thing that, that you're going through or you've come to, you've realized is that practice work is more exciting. I find it really exciting. Yeah. And honestly, I felt like I've learned so much in the last two years um, from experts and from continuing certifications that I'm doing that I don't really miss uh, learning in a classroom environment right now. Yeah. Maybe it's something that down the line will speak to me again, but for the foreseeable future, it's just not something I'm interested in. I want to well, help people right, right now. Well, not only that, and maybe this is uh, part of what you do with your consultancy, but like I'm finding that um, a lot of uh, PhDs that are in school right now, especially amidst the COVID outbreak, they're really second guessing mm. going into their doctoral program. And those that are graduating, perhaps similar to your fiance, they're finding that the, the jobs aren't there for them. No, the jobs aren't there. Um, my my fiance has been job hunting for a long time. I'll be open about that. Yeah. He's looking for something that's a good fit in a location that he'll be happy with. Uh, he was definitely on that tenure track mindset for a long time. And when yeah. the particularly American literature market just is non-existent, uh, he realized he had to change. And and that was, it's like a big mental, mental thing too. Like, yeah. Uh, I see it going on all the time in essentially every field that there is in higher education. Well, for what it's worth, um, I worked, I, I was a, a creative director for a uh, consulting firm down in uh, North Carolina for, for about a year. And um, it was owned by a professor, a PhD, mm -hmm. who I was colleagues with. And um, he was much more interested in the practical side, but what he was doing was he was taking those practical experiences and then dropping some philosophy and theory on top of it. And then he was able to produce, you know, publishable content that at conferences sense. and whatnot. But, you know, he, his background was more in technical communication mm -hmm. and I keep getting emails about UX writing. I don't know yes. if, you, if you see this like user experience writing and a lot of tech companies are actually needing that particular background right they now. They really so do. For what it's worth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm going through and maybe that's just some runoff from having to cope with being self-isolated. I, as an extrovert, like I'm not, seeing people so like that this podcast serves like this you know soothing sort of function like 
hey, you know, I, I'm scratching that itch, so to speak. Oh, that's funny. I'm an introvert, so I enjoy I doing tell. this virtually. But yeah. if I was if I was with you in person, I think I'd be more nervous. I think yeah. that um, I might not even say the same things or volunteer the same stories. So definitely for me, this is more comfortable. That's funny. Yeah, when you said you loved online teaching, I'm like, oh, well, she's an introvert. Oh, yeah, I loved yeah. it. I had so much fun with it. <laughs> Um, what were, what was your experience like in the classroom? What, what, what were you like as a teacher? Um, I'm a really friendly teacher and I would say that I only provide the information that students need to learn. Um, so that meant that definitely some of my classes were a little bit shorter or had a little bit less than a lot of teachers would probably include in composition courses. But I saw so many of my students significantly improve their writing. Um, So I really felt like my lesson plans were coming through to to what my goals were. And so I I really had no problems with the classroom except that I found it pretty tiring. Um, And it wasn't wasn't the teaching part that was tiring. For me, I'm pretty empathetic as a person. Um, And I spent quite a bit of time on the student affairs side of, of, higher ed. So when I when I was kind of going into teaching, it was hard for me to turn off those portions. Like I hearing about what was going on in my students' lives all the time was something that was great because they were opening up to me. Yeah. But I felt like I was also carrying that. And that was too much for me. And I realized that would be my future if I kind of stayed in academia. Yeah, you know, especially if you are in the Midwest or the Rust Belt those experiences weigh heavy on your soul. Um, I had a lot of students that, you know, they they came from a Rust Belt background, which mm-hmm. by itself is fine, except that like their entire lives and even a good portion of their parents' lives has just been defined by economic ruin. Yeah, you know, right. They grew up in an area that was once thriving, is now devastated, mm-hmm. can't come back, or it's, it's in, inch by inch. And um, some of these students are first time college students. That's still a thing. And, um, you know, they're not getting the support from home that they need on top of the fact that like maybe their families are, you know, always struggling for food or money Mm -hmm. or whatever. And yeah, it it absolutely takes a toll. I mean, a good portion of my time as a teacher, especially during office hours, was just trying to help these students figure out some of their crap, you know, outside Uh of the classroom, because they may have been great students, but, you know, um, so I I don't blame you in that respect. It is definitely tiring. Yeah, it was just, um, it was just too much for me. And I could definitely recognize the difference when I was teaching online versus when I was teaching in person. Um, And I felt like I was a better teacher online than in person, partially because of that. Yeah. Well, regardless of of the format, I'm glad that you had the experience of that because it really develops a very special empathy. Yeah. For Mm. your fellow man and especially students. And, um, that is not necessarily something that is universal. It's not like every yeah. professor, or every teacher has that empathy built in. Um, I agree with that. Definitely. And maybe it's because we were on the creative professions side of things that we needed that empathy because ultimately our work is art. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't and, know. Would- and also I would say empathy. It's definitely about understanding what the other side is trying to convey about what right. they're feeling and what other people feel about it. So, yeah. 
So you've got all of this experience on, on the faculty side, on the student side, um, in, in higher ed, and mm -hmm. now you're running your own consultancy called The Academic Designer. Yeah, so... What is this about? Essentially, when I was finishing up grad school, I was sitting in the graduate coordinator's office and she said, so I'm trying to put together this professional writing team for the department next semester. Um, I don't really know anyone and their skills, like who's good at social media, who's good at like web writing and stuff like that. And I said, yeah. I want that job. <laughs> I pushed so hard. I was like, here are all of my qualifications. I know that I'm scheduled to teach two classes next semester, but this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I think that this would be a perfect fit for me. And she said, I don't know, like we're, we're, we're definitely looking for someone who's not graduating this semester. We want someone who can continue with us next year. And I said, I am a great planner and strategist. I will put together guides for your future your future teams, I'll help put together strategies, right. whatever you need. And so when they gave me the job, I kind of decided really quickly, I'm going to do this for a living. I want to do this for my business. Right. And I want to work specifically, I think with higher ed. I don't know how, but when I was going into that kind of assistantship and mm -hmm. professional writing, I knew that that was something that I wanted to do long-term. And then when I was good at it, I really kind of dove into professional development and tried to learn as much as I possibly could um, before I got started. So that job was essentially your incubator experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I will say I, I didn't have a lot of oversight, which meant that I had a lot of freedom to really decide what, what the social, social channels were going to be saying, what their goals were, um, and really kind of figuring out where we needed to go from there, what needed to be updated, and why. So how long have you been doing your own, uh, or operating your own practice, excuse me? Um, so it's been about two years now, but I would say I've only been taking clients for about a year and a half. Um, okay. Starting my own business, not coming from a business background, there was so much that I needed to learn. And it definitely took time um, and patience and, and learning a ton of new things all at once. Right. But once I started taking clients, I realized how much I loved it. And I kind of threw myself full force into it um, and decided not to look for another job, that this was what I was going to do. And um, now that it's in its second year, things are going great. Mm -hmm. and I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad I took that risk. It was a big risk. <laughs> hey, oh, no doubt. Starting your own business always is. Without yeah. a what, uh, what services do you offer? Uh, um, so what I've been offering mostly in the past few months is strategic planning for website or social media. Um, so okay. what I find is that a lot of faculty members, they know that they want a website, but they're not sure how to go about it. They don't know what to put on it. And for so themselves or for, their for themselves. Okay. Well, I think that that's both. Most faculty are more interested in for themselves. Yes. Um, departments definitely need help with that, but they usually have a team in place to do the execution. So they need help with strategy and planning what needs to happen. But individual faculty mostly just need help figuring out what to say about themselves and why. So what do you recommend to them? Uh, so let, so you, you saw my web properties and you know my personal portfolio, I take a very passive approach to it. Um, it's basically a repository. So anytime I get an article or a podcast, like I just dump it there. And that's been useful for me in terms of like developing my CV because it's basically a time capsule. Right. Ah, but yeah. I'm not using my portfolio site as a means of 
sticking my claim as a, as a thought leader, right? Yeah. Um, so what would your recommendations be for some faculty that are interested in having a portfolio that is more than just a repository for their accolades and research? Yeah. Well, I think it starts out with trying to figure out what your goals are and what you want to share about yourself. So if your focus is teaching, you're going to want to have teaching resources on there, which is something a lot of faculty don't necessarily think people will be interested in. But the truth is students these days are really interested in what their faculty teaching style is like. They would love to have just a little bit of information in advance. So having something like a one paragraph teaching statement about what your teaching style is like or having a sample syllabi, it's going to make a really big difference for those potential students. Um, it could also make a difference for your graduate students or colleagues if they're looking for information about you, or right. they're even just looking for an idea of what you what your syllabus looks like. So I think that there's a lot of options um, for teachers to better showcase themselves online, especially through that website. But there's also you could do a guest blog post for your department, you could talk about it on social media. So I think thinking about your goals is probably the first step. What do you want to share about yourself? And then the second thing is figuring out where you want to share it. A website isn't right for everyone. It, it does take a lot to manage it, to update it, to make sure that you're sharing it so people are actually coming to visit all of that hard work that you've done. Um, social media is pretty fast. Most people are on it. So that can be a better option for people too. And even cultivating that personality for social media takes a lot of time and strategy. You know, I, I found faculty people, professors, to be extremely sensitive to their identity. Yes. How they're perceived. Um, and, you know, having been on that side of things, I can speak to that absolutely. You know, um, there are some people that are passive about it. And, you know, generally they may be long tenured full professors when they don't really have to care as much. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, as I was climbing the ladder, like everything was extremely important. I had to cover all the details. And, you know, uh, recently in the past few weeks, this conversation came up with someone about how um, when they started tenure track, they were a design professor, they started mm -hmm. tenure track, you know, their goal was to, you know, push their research as far and as fast as they could right. leading into tenure, which is you no know, part of the course. Um, but this idea of edu, edu celebrity <laughs> came into yeah. play and um I realized that like even though so that was a term that I wasn't familiar with before just a few weeks ago but I realized that you know as I was getting going through that that tenure ladder that tenure experience like that's absolutely what I was trying to do was to mm -hmm. become like this very well-known or at least well-known commodity in the design teaching right field. And I, I feel proud of the success that I had with that, even though it was not, it was inadvertent. Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, oh, well, you host, a, you host a, a national conference and you put yourself out there to review proposals and you do all the voluntary work. It's pretty easy to get that, to level up your reputation in that respect. Um, what do you say to, what do you say to, 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 
to your clients that are maybe in that position? Like, is it okay to want to elevate your profile and have that reputation? Or, you know, is it, is it okay to want to, to aspire to that edu celebrity status? Or what do you think? Yeah, well, I think that one of the things that people are most attracted to with that kind of edu celebrity or ed educational influencer status is really how widely people are interested in what you're actually doing, are interested in your research, and are having conversations about that research too. Um, so it's not just that people respect you, it's that people are actually having conversations and talking with you about it. Um, I think that people don't always know how much work it is, I think, to be that popular all of the time. Yeah. Um, and I would say that it's not limited to tenured, um, highly, highly uh, accomplished professors. I've seen graduate students reach that kind of level of celebrity um, by doing great work and putting it out there. That's yes. the big difference. Like yeah. you could do all those reviews and you could host a national conference and you could have awesome publications, but unless people are hearing about it in some way, unless you're sharing it, it's unlikely that someone else is going to share it for you. So it's unlikely you're going to get that community who's truly interested in what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, if you are already an educational celebrity, it's likely that your university is really helping to promote that message. They probably right. have their communications um, team on it, their PR people on it. Uh, but for most people, for the, the vast majority of people, that needs to come from you. And yeah. I would say that it starts with being sure that you can communicate why something matters and like why what what you did was good to the people around you already like your friends and your family right yeah i you know having been on that side of things i know that it definitely takes you away from your family yeah and you know all the work you put into it i mean you know the effort yields its own rewards and mm -hmm. you know for as much time as i took away from my family to ensure that i could get tenure you know, um, I don't, I don't regret that. It, mm -hmm. There are regrettable moments, but you know, I, I was pursuing tenure for the, the sake of my family. And, of course. You know, I think, I think, I mean, um, like sharing, sharing your accomplishment with your family, oh, not just, yeah. not just sharing it with the, the, the design community. But no, also, I know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I'm, well, you know, to that point, like, you know, they were a part of that. So like yeah. getting tenure, getting the governor's award, getting all these other accolades, like those things wouldn't have happened without their support. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but, uh, you know, now that I've been out of full-time teaching for an academic year, you know, I've been able to cultivate these really unique perceptions on just exactly how I was functioning as an academic and mm. how, how much I was pissing off other people <laughs> <laughs> just by being productive. So, yeah, I think... I think that, yes, that can definitely happen. And I think that that's the initial reaction. Like when people are on Twitter and they see all these people posting about their accomplishments, some people will go ahead and like it. They're like, that's awesome because that's really hard to do. And other people just feel bad, like they should have done more or they weren't productive oh. enough. And right. so I see a lot of that kind of dichotomy play out on social media, especially on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, one of the things that I, one of the recurring elements or recurring themes of, of my interviews with folks, especially if they're in, hi, Rachel. <laughs> hey. 
So this is uh, one of my colleagues. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'm just gonna, hey, I'm gonna boot you out and we'll kick, we'll kick back into things in a few minutes, okay? All right, she can hang out there. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, there's a damn near 40 podcasts. Oh, there she goes. Damn near 40 podcasts, and that's the first time that's happened. Um, anyway, um, what was I saying? I don't remember. We were talking about oh, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. The higher ed social media folks. And so um, I, I put, so my faculty background, like, I never saw a competition I didn't like or a grant I didn't like. So I was applying, <laughs> I applied to everything, everything. And part of the reason for doing that was I was developing a, um, I was developing my writing, you know, mm -hmm. and I saw it mostly as a, as a learning exercise grounded mm -hmm. in a practical output. So, you know, if I didn't get a grant, then okay, fine. I can, I, I learned how to write it. I can take that language, repurpose it for other things. Sometimes I'd get it. Sometimes I get the scholarship and then have to figure out how to do the thing. Um, but um, now that I'm on the staff side in higher mm -hmm. ed and um, I'm getting a sense of what things are like and I'm and trying to encourage people to like, you know, especially if you're in higher ed marketing, submit to competitions, submit to conferences and, you know, try to boost up your work as much as possible. You know, um, I've seen faculty people submit their work for consideration, uh, into competitions and their work wasn't any good, you know, but they did it anyway. <laughs> they did uh, it anyway. Yeah. Right. So I've been trying to, to, to get people to understand like your work has a lot of value and you should put it out there to be measured against the people that you respect. I, I would say I'm pretty similar. I definitely went out for things that um, like someone didn't give me permission to apply to national conferences. I just did it. And then when I said, hey, I got into the MLA conference, people were like, who told you to apply to that? And I was like, no one, right. I just did it. And obviously they like my proposal since they accepted it. So right. are you going to tell me I shouldn't? Um, I felt like there was a lot of that when I was in grad school uh, where I was just like, I'm going to do this thing and let's see how it goes. Uh, but I was always encouraging my friends and the people around me to do the same. And I think there's a lot of apprehension about um, putting putting your name out there, putting putting your writing and your work out there to be judged. And at least in English, um, a lot of my colleagues felt very apprehensive about that kind of thing. So yeah. it's great yeah. to hear that that you going after things was more of a practice. It seems like a mindset mindset thing um, in terms of how you were approaching applying to grants and applying to contests and awards. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, it absolutely was. I mean, you know, for for me, you know, I as a as a designer, I wasn't publishing papers because mm -hmm. that isn't entirely appropriate for my field. Right. I was getting logos in competitions and getting logos in in books, but I was also doing client work, which is a form of peer yeah. Work. And so I, I I grounded a lot of myself in that, and then also the grant writing. So in in where I was, grant writing wasn't even a measurable thing uh, mm -hmm. that you could utilize in your tenure track process until we had to change the governance and bylaws to get that accepted. And wow. Uh, yeah, so it's like that's shocking. Yeah, so the, the first grant I, I co-wrote, I got a hundred thousand dollars from the National Endowment for the Arts. 
and it wasn't even something I could use towards tenure until we had to change the bylaws. And until even, you petitioned for it. That's, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And then even, even at that point, some of the, some of the people I was dealing with, they were just like, well, no one's writing grants. Why would we incorporate this into our accepted measures for tenure? And it's just like, Oh, that's so interesting. Cause I, not, just in different fields, like it's, it's yeah. like the, the gold standard sometimes, um, especially like research funding. So, so well, that's so surprising. Where I was, it, it was a really unique kind of. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, thank goodness you got it changed for right. all the people to come, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if there's one thing that I did. It's that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, so you're you're two years into your business, right? Mm -hmm. um, what does the future hold for it? Where where can you expand? How can you grow? How is your business being affected now by the mm. outbreak? Are you seeing an uptick in business or what's going on? Um, so when I started out, I really thought I was just going to be building faculty websites and um, it would be more of a side hustle and maybe I'd uh, dive more into communications and a full-time job. Uh, but what I realized was I was recognizing a lot of areas that faculty needed help. And by doing that kind of research of what faculty needed, I was also learning what their academic programs needed, what the research centers needed, and what other educational societies most need to communicate with their audiences. Um, one of the things that I have been focused on is how many types of audiences are coming to these sites. It's not just students, it's right. not just faculty um, around the world, it's also uh, research funders, um, people who have a particular commercial stake in that research. There's all sorts of people that are coming and really they need to communicate with all of them. So my, my focus now is helping faculty with the strategy side and um, now I'm focusing on working more with corporations and businesses um, in that higher ed field and, and cool. in that sector. Um, so I saw quite a bit of a downtick in clients when coronavirus happened. I think that's because higher education as an industry just kind of has been struggling financially. Um, faculty members have been struggling to balance everything. I mean, it's so much to transition all of your courses online and to learn so much new technology all at once. Um, right. Now that the semester's kind of ended, I'm getting a lot of, a lot of emails and, and calls about um, potential clients, so that's great. Uh, but there was definitely a downtick um, during, the, during coronavirus, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, especially since the bottom is falling out on the economy and even yeah. higher ed, you know, uh, you're going to have a lot of academics trying to enter, you know, different fields or go back into professional practice or something like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was even, a, it was a struggle for me, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm lucky that my, my friends found this pit job for me because I had applied to like five or six different jobs mm -hmm. and i would say out of the six four responded two didn't they just didn't even bother i mean um, that's still that's still a great response rate right. i have yeah, friends coming out that are applying to like over a hundred universities for right. positions with that full packet of like academic you know portfolio and right. they're hearing back from maybe 10 percent of them mm -hmm. yeah and so so here's some 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 something of interest. So, you know, when I applied to those six jobs, my cover, it was, it had everything to do with my cover letter mm. and my, my resume it had nothing to do with my portfolio of the four people that responded. They basically, and these were arts organizations. They're like, 
you're overqualified. We'd love to hire you, but you're overqualified. And as soon as we hire you, you're, you're going to leave because you'll be mm-hmm. bored. Um, so I had that working against me. Um, my academic CV was obviously gigantic and right. not even something anyone wanted to realistically look at. <laughs> um, but so was my cover letter. You know, my uh, cover letter did a great job of addressing all of the hot spots of my career and some of my accolades and some of the things that made me really fine tuned for these different positions. And they're just like, this shit doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. So what I changed my cover letter. Uh, I had to go back to the absolute basics of like, this is what you're we're coming right out of bachelor degree, mm. right? Coming right out of undergrad. Like, here's what your cover letter should look like. One page, hyper simple, talk about the high points and move on. As soon as I did that, then I started getting like rapid response. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. So once you once you changed up what you thought the expectations of the reader were, you got all the responses that you had been missing and that you had right. expected with actually showcasing your accolades. Yeah, yeah. So my CV went down to to my resume went down to one to two pages. My cover letter was one page. Um, and of course you want to design these things for your audience. Like that is the core principle number one rule right? But as an academic, I was out of that pocket. And despite being a designer and knowing that, the context was different. And I'm thinking like, well, I'm coming in with all of this stuff. I think people would be excited to talk to me. Because that's how you get grants. (laughs) Right. Because that's how you get grants. And uh, yeah. And those accolades make a a huge difference with, with pursuing that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I came to find out like, no, this isn't resonating at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some people would be really excited about, you know, having a governor's award employee or whatever, but it was just not, it was just out of touch. I was, you know what it was? I was speaking a different language. Yeah. The things I had to say mattered, but ultimately it was how I was saying them as an academic in an academic voice to a non-academic that really did not work in my favor. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I yeah. think um, I focus a lot on also that. Also higher ed institute. There were some higher ed, some universities I applied to. And they, and they still didn't want. Yeah, that didn't take at all. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> I digress. Oh, that's so funny. Well, I would say I would say most most faculty who who approach me um, mostly have the same kind of problem where they're so used to speaking in that academic voice, yep. they have no idea how to communicate even their bio about themselves to other people. Um, so a lot of it's just having a conversation and talking and it's like, well, I don't know anything about what you're doing. Why don't you tell me about it? And then we can come up with something because I feel like in academia, we know that the people around us in our colleagues and even our students have a good understanding of the terminology and the jargon that we use. They have a good understanding of maybe history that we just assume that they know because they're in that field. But when we're talking about a website, when we're talking about social media, you encounter hundreds, thousands of people that just have no idea what you do and you have to speak with them too. Yep, I agree. So um, I'm going to ask you for some solicit... uh, I guess some solicited advice for free. Yeah, go ahead. What, uh, all right, so 
I've got, I, I had students this year that were graduating and they're graduating into an economy that can't support them. Right. They've got all the ambition and energy in the world to kickstart their careers and to do amazing things. And they've just been provided this massive false start. Like yeah. some of them had job, job offers rescinded. Some of them had internships canceled. What would be your recommendations for them on how to move forward uh, and beyond uh, this present time to really, you know, kickstart their careers now in this time of self-isolation? Yeah, I think for me, um, starting to take on projects with individual clients uh, as a freelancer would have been very beneficial um, if I was going through the same time period. Uh, as a graphic design student or as a design student, you definitely have the skills, you probably have a portfolio in place already for when you are applying to that internship or that job. And reach out to the people that you know and see if anyone needs help with something right now. Um, there's not too much like you don't have you don't have as much control as other people would have had when they came out of their degree to to say this is what I'm going to do but this is what field you were interested in so whatever you can do to continue working in this field now would be beneficial um, I would say don't take on free work unless you have to and can afford to um, but there's definitely opportunity out there for individual projects um, so you can continue your practice that being said I have found that I've learned far more about helping my customers in this field from other industries yeah. when I was working in conferences and events I really got to learn how events work, how they run, how the person who is handling all of the logistics operates. And that really helped me understand how to ask good questions and understand my clients better. When I was working in residential life, it helped me understand students and helped me understand what their needs were and what people are willing to and not willing to talk about when you ask them. Um, so the, the positions that I've had in different areas have really helped me be better with my clients, be better at finding solutions and being more creative with my work. So don't think that just because you might have to enter another field um, temporarily that you can't learn a ton from it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my advice. I'd agree with you on that, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm learning the most from right now is, so I'm doing a lot of, trying to do a lot of self-education on mm. you know, data analytics, uh, yeah. content strategy, all the marketing things that we care about, but I'm trying to expand beyond that a little bit, looking at data analytics and, you know, that speaks to my research background, but also storytelling and yeah. fiction writing. You know, oh, that's great. Um, and um, I, but also illustration. I'm drawing again and my soul feels like a bit nourished because at one oh, time I, love that. I, was, I was able to draw and draw well. And now <laughs> I'm, I'm coming back to it and I've learned uh, just exactly how to draw. So before, like it was just something I did and i built those skills myself. But then, you know, spending 10 years in art departments, I learned how other people did it and I was able to apply those principles. So now I'm drawing more and it feels really great. But, um, you know, even looking at illustration on Instagram, some of the amazing illustrators on there yeah. just informing a lot of my work now on the creative side. 
So I would, I would say actually social media has been a great resource for me to find new certifications and professional development opportunities I wouldn't have heard of. Um, I'm like you, I'm always interested in learning new things and, and developing my practice in new areas, um, not just what I'm already good at. And so uh, I meet people all the time that are like, hey, I just took this illustration class or I just took this um, data visualization class or uh, here's a webinar that's coming up that you might be interested in. And I'm always the first to say, yes, sign me up yep. because maybe I'm not going to be interested in it. But if I didn't attend, if I didn't figure out if I was going to, if it wanted to be something that I wanted to learn, mm -hmm. then I wouldn't know. So I do usually turn to social media for that because it's people who um, are already researchers and already in my um, kind of commute larger community. And so if they're saying that this is something they took and it works for them, then it's usually something I'm willing to look at too. Excellent. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> so Jennifer, if folks are interested in learning more about you and the academic designer, how can they find you? How can they reach out? Uh, you can find me on my website at theacademicdesigner.com. I have a blog full of advice there and I'm on social media at higher ed PR. Awesome. Well, this was great. Thank you so much for your time. And um, I'll hit you back up uh, when I want to talk about that uh, higher ed uh, social media marketers writing circle. Great. This was so much fun. I had a great time. Yeah. All right. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks.